Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everyone, for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. It's good to be back together, Riley. Yeah. We just got done with... uh talking with Shiloh, and that was a cool experience over the weekend. So That was, yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back together with Shiloh to talk about the serpent, yeah, Satan, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. The accuser. The accuser, yeah. Next time. So today I had the idea to talk about, I don't know, stillness and ignorance, maybe knowledge, awareness, inspiration, getting answers, not getting answers being okay with not having answers, being open to receiving answers when you're not expecting them, being okay with not receiving them when you are. That's a long title. <laughs> I didn't mean it as a title. We'll have to come up with a title for this. Yeah, I don't know. No, but that I think it'll be cool. Yeah, yeah we talked about this pre-show and we've got some ideas. Let's talk about this. Stillness. Let's start there. Let's start with stillness. I think that's a great place to start because if you want to talk about uncertainty and confusion and not knowing and all that, all that stuff, in my mind, one of the best ways to gain understanding and knowledge is in stillness. And there's, there's different kinds of stillness. There's stillness of the body. There's stillness of the mind. You can put yourself in still environments. There's, there's the kind of stillness that comes from complete quiet. And then there's the kind of stillness that comes from just a sense of inner peace. So I think there's different types of stillness. But ultimately, if you were to kind of group them all together and just call it one category, stillness, what, is, what does that do for us? I love what you said, Riley, because you know, I've had the experience of you know, learning how to meditate and thinking it just had to be quiet so I could do it. You know, like if it weren't quiet, I couldn't meditate and I've got kids. And, you know, here you're trying to be still and calm and you're, and you can't because other people, right. And it's, and you have right. to tell them to be still and quiet so you can be still and quiet. And it's not necessary. Like I've learned to be still and quiet and to meditate uh, while, while this is going on. And it's weird too, because here's another example. And I actually did this earlier because all the way back I mean, I was doing this before it was cool, all the way back in the 90s, you know, sitting at Starbucks in between teaching classes uh, as a corporate trainer, you know, going from company to company. I just go to Starbucks to work. And the thing that works for me, and I still do it, I sit at Starbucks these days and translate, you know, what works for me is it's the noise just becomes this background noise. And then I, I still end up in a place of stillness in my own mind. Yeah, and that that kind of white noise can actually serve as a medium for focus. Um, some people use different types of music to focus their mind, and there might be some science behind that. I mean, I got very into binaural beats for a while, and I still use them from time to time. But basically, what those are is different wavelength patterns or uh, oscillatory uh, 
like different speeds of oscillation given to sound so that it puts your mind in a different in a different state depending on the speed of oscillation so there's alpha beta delta gamma all those different types of sounds and each one of those corresponds with a different state of consciousness so whether it be you know kind of like a deep meditative consciousness or sleep or high focus activity each one of those has a different uh, wavelength uh, uh, like brain waves and so i used to be very into those binaural beats and and one way i used to kind of like focus my attention was to ramp up the the speed of these oscillations you know and so the binaural beats would essentially play this into my headphone this kind of wah 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 like really fast oscillation sound and it would focus my mind like get me hyper focused on whatever it was i was i was working on that's cool conversely yeah just conversely there was you get into the gamma uh range where it's like wah 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 like much slower and all of a sudden everything in your body process why it starts to slow down so i think some of that stuff that the power of sound can be used to help you get into whatever state you're reaching for. That's so interesting. I've heard about this. And I think I've even, I think Shiloh shared with me some tracks from YouTube that I tried. I didn't really like them. So I know that that, that can work. And by the way, in my example, uh, I didn't like uh, the, the way that I learned to do this either when I first started doing it. Now I love it. So back in the 90s, again, as a corporate trainer teaching languages, I got into Dr. Lozanov's method of accelerated learning. It, this is, you know, Cold War era. Uh, this comes out, you know, as about from a, about a decade earlier. The we found out that the Russians could learn languages faster than us. Oh no, we got to figure this out. How do we? What are they doing? You know. And so I actually went and, and not because I was worried about Cold War or anything, but just interested in learning languages and teaching languages faster. I learned about accelerated learning. One of the things that was done is that they played Baroque music. Largo movements. I'm talking about the second movement, the middle movement in Baroque music. I'm talking like Bach, Telemann, Vivaldi, um, Mozart. So, well, maybe not Mozart. He's early classical. But so you have these 40 to 60 beat per minute movements. And what happens is as as you listen to these 40 to 60 beats per minute movements, your heart rate matches them. And with your heart rate matching that, you know, those 40 to 60 beats per minute, it brings your brainwave frequencies down to between 7 and 10 cycles per second where your conscious and subconscious overlap. And now you have access to the subconscious. Right? Because everything, this is, this is something that we, we asked my philosophy teacher or professor in college if we could listen to some Baroque music while taking exams so that we could relax and be able to remember. Because in exam situations, you get tense. And what happens is those brainwave frequencies shoot way up. And now you can't reach down into the subconscious where everything you heard in your lectures and everything you read in your books is there. You just can't, you know, you can't reach it. And so that was one of the, the secrets that they used to that. And I've, I've, I love Baroque music. I didn't even like harpsichord at the time. You know, I said, okay, I'm going to do this because of what it does. So maybe I should give the binaurals another chance. Well, here's, here's just a quick example. And you can, you can hear the difference. And I think I had it backward. The, the gamma waves are the high frequency ones. So they're so high, they hardly even differentiate. And as you slow it down into the betas, alphas, thetas, and deltas, deltas would be like deep sleep. Can you hear the wah, 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 wah? Yeah, that's pretty cool. It sounds like a sandworm is coming. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, those Just are, kidding. I think they kind of accomplish some of that same thing that you're talking about, where 
the beats per minute, either slow or fast, will help your your physical and mental processes match that. And, you know, maybe that helps to achieve a sense of stillness. Now, there's also the argument that could be made on the opposite side that says we've, we've become so overburdened with keeping our mind busy, whether it's with, you know, background music while we're uh, doing work on a computer and, you know, we've maybe we're playing a podcast at the same time. Like it's just so much at the same time, you know, that we've we've lost connection with sort of the what you might call the autonomic side of your of your body, of your soul, those things that happen automatically. So for instance, throughout the day, your, your autonomic processes are things you, that happen without us thinking about it. So for instance, our breathing, right? How, how often during the day do we connect with our breathing? It's almost never, unless you do it consciously. Yeah, unless you're being intentional about it, you, you just don't do it. People don't realize too, Riley, that, that all this sensory input wears you down. It just tires you. There's no if, if there's sensory input, your senses are taking it in. And so they are functioning, they're acting, they're working, and they're not resting as long as that's there. Unless, again, I do think that, again, that you can actually learn to tune these things out. But again, that's intentional. That's when you're meditating. Yeah. And of course, you can turn them off too, right? There's that. If you can get the kids quiet, it's awesome, right? <laughs> Well, and I, I know that I'm fortunate and privileged in this, in this area because I work for myself in an office that's enclosed and I'm I'm by myself for hours at, at a time during the day. And I know that not everyone has that, you know, but I do know that most people, I mean, the large majority of people can find five to 10 minutes of stillness and silence. Even if you have to go lock yourself in the bathroom? Yeah. I have, you know, in all, all, all seriousness, my daughter's uh, tend to go into the closet where they're surrounded by clothes and they're going to be what three you know three doors away from anybody something like that two or three doors away from anybody depending on where your room is right and that can make a difference too I mean I've been looking for them and calling them and I can't find them and it turns out they're in the closet this is one at a time right just I'll find one of them sitting there I think there's a natural human longing for that that stillness being alone and in a quiet um, atmosphere where your mind and body can sync back up together. Yeah, another one is darkness. You know, we, we don't realize, we, we just don't get, Not I'm not just talking about when it's noisy at the office or uh, there's just, even if, let's say no one's home and you're all alone. I remember during the, during the lockdown phase of the pandemic where everybody's home all the time. And of course, we, we've actually, we, our family has been at home for years. You know, we homeschool, we work at home. But once a week, my wife would take all of the kids with her and she'd take uh, kids to the ballet studio. Normally I'd do that, but once a week she'd do it and I'd be left alone. And you can still hear the refrigerator. The refrigerator's running, the air conditioning. We never get any darkness either. If you think about, say, Joseph Smith's time, right? 19th century. When it was dark, it was dark. When it was quiet, it was quiet. And we don't get that. I mean, that's that's one of the byproducts of our modern societies. There's always some electronic device that you can hear whirring in the background. There's always artificial light being piped in. Even when you're in a closet, sometimes there's light. Uh, you know, I today during my meditation, I like to meditate in the dark because, again, I'm like you. I like I like having no distraction from the electronic stuff. Well, even though I had muted my phone, when you get a text message or something, it it lights up the screen, right? And it was... My eyes were closed. I was in a dark room 
and it was to my right, kind of sitting upright against against my computer. And even with eyes closed, I saw the light come on and it was a it was a distraction. It was a mild distraction. It wasn't a big deal, but enough that I knew I had to turn it around. And so I reached over and turned it around. I wanted I wanted no distraction. If I could it was just another level of distraction. If I can get rid of that, great. So you're right. I think that we have this longing for disconnection from the artificial world, let's call it, and and more of a connection with with the natural world. Yeah, which, you know, when you say natural world, it makes me think of going hiking, going up to the mountains or whatever. But there is even a sense where just going out in your backyard and taking off your shoes, sometimes, you know what, I have to admit, sometimes, I've never done this, sometimes I just feel like I just want to go out in the backyard and just take off all my clothes and lie on the grass. (laughs) Where does that come from? Right. There's something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never acted on this because it just sounds crazy, but I know that there's something to it. I know there's a reason for this. I think it's just like what we said before. It's that it's that connection back to creation. Right. That you're a natural being and you want to get back into nature and and away from the artificial. So let's talk kind of deeper about what stillness can do for us. I mean, one of my favorite quotes that I share on this podcast all the time, and maybe I'll extend it this time because normally I just give the beginning of it, which is stillness is the altar of spirit. And that's Paramahansa Yogananda. Stillness is the altar of spirit. But if he continues and you keep reading, he says, where motion ceases, spirit begins to manifest. That part is fascinating to me. Where motion ceases, spirit begins to manifest. So as I was sitting in my meditation today, one of the things I, I really strive to do is no movement of my body at all. I mean, I've gotten to a point now where even if my ear itches, I don't reach up and itch it. I just I can make the feeling just kind of go away by not giving attention to it. So I work on complete stillness of my physical body. And where that motion ceases, I become less aware that my body is even there, but yet I still have awareness. And Chris, you shared an awesome podcast with me from Rob Bell that was called The Awareness of Awareness. And one of the things he talked about in that episode was how if you're aware of yourself or aware of your thoughts, what you're really talking about is two separate things, like the awareness of your awareness, right? So that that's essentially saying there's an awareness outside of your material body that's aware of your material body. It's kind of like that cosmic consciousness we've talked about in the past. And when I'm in that stillness of body in meditation, where I no longer feel the pressures exerted against my body, there's no friction because I'm not moving. There's no pressure because I found a nice, comfortable starting position. And the only thing that I am connected with are the movements within my body that are autonomic, that are natural, that come from, you could say, from God or from whatever, biology. So it's the breathing and it's the heartbeat. And when I connect back to those things, that's for me when spirit begins to manifest. Now, the interesting thing is that you can connect again on another level with what ancient societies understood that breathing and breath is the ultimate connection with spirit. In most cases, they were the same word. It was the same for the Chinese, the ancient Scandinavians. Uh, The Greek word for breath, pneuma, is the same as the Greek word for spirit. Same in Hebrew, ruach, spirit and breath. So those folks knew, those ancient societies without all the distractions knew that that common connection between breath and spirit was one and the same. 
Yeah, when I when I think about my experience learning to meditate, you know, one of my first teachers was someone who, and this is really to the point that you made earlier, that that we just are not aware of our breath unless we actually make it a point to become aware of our breath. And so one of my first meditation teachers taught me any one breath that you take intentionally, right, where that you focus on it is a meditation. So if you're worried about how can I sit still for 20 minutes and focus on my breath, just try one breath. You just say, right now I'm going to take a breath. Hold it and release it. And usually, if you can just take a, a deep breath, feel your stomach rise, and then hold it for a few seconds, and then release it longer than you than you take it in, right? Breathe in through your nostrils, breathe out through your mouth, gently parting your lips, and breathe out longer than you breathe in. And even if you just do that one time and you say, I'm, I'm doing this, right? I'm focusing on this, and you do it, that's a meditation. Well, and there's entire practices within religious disciplines focused on nothing but understanding, calling attention to, and benefiting from breath, from that breath work. I mean, prana, prana yoga in, in the Hindu tradition, that's essentially all it is. It's, it's breath work. It's hyper-focused on breath. And there's a lot of Christian uh, meditative traditions that put a lot of focus into breath as well. So it's, it's sort of the core of all meditation is to really understand and connect with breathing as one of the original and most important processes of, of human connection with, with divine, for sure. And to your other point, uh, when it comes to the heartbeat, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh taught me through his books, you know, through reading Thich Nhat Hanh's books, to, to just to actually notice my heartbeat, right? To just maybe put your hand on your heart, right? Feel it and acknowledge it, and thank your heart. Your heart beats 24-7-365, or you wouldn't be here, right? 24-7-365 times 80, 90, 100, however many years you live, right? right? Until so, it doesn't, yeah. Right. And, so, and it does this ceaselessly and thanklessly unless you actually take a minute and thank your heart. Thank you, heart, for beating ceaselessly, for moving the blood through, you know, through my body and keeping me alive. It's such a beautiful thing. In my, in my meditations, I'll go from starting with that comfortable position, like that position that doesn't include any friction or stress or as, as, as much as to the extent it's possible for me in my current situation. And then it moves to the breath. And then the third thing is it moves to my heart and noticing my heart and bringing attention to my kind of that first big thump followed by that echo thump that comes in a heartbeat that, you know, and really paying attention to that heart as another connection with the divine. Because again, we do nothing to control our, I mean, not to control, but we do nothing to, to ensure that we keep breathing or that our heart keeps beating in the short run, obviously, long run, you know, you stay fit and exercise and all that. But in the short run, those things just happen. They, they take care of themselves. And every once in a while, it really does pay to bring your attention to them as a, in a sense of gratitude, as you mentioned, but also just to realize that it's going on in the background at all times. Whether you notice it or not, it's always going on. And so it pays to notice it, to put some intention and some attention to it and uh, see what happens as a result. And for me, what happens typically is I'm filled with gratitude. I am completely emptied of 
that those other influences or distractions that might be happening. If I'm hyper-focused on my breath and on my heartbeat, it really, it really puts me in a zone where I, I feel like I can receive all kinds of revelatory insight. You know, when it comes to the long run, and, and Keynes is famous for saying, the economist Keynes is famous for saying, in the long run, we're all dead. And I think that's what you're getting at, by the way. But, you know, it, even my father has always been an example to me, even when he was younger, but it's, it's maybe especially now as he's older, of saying, I woke up today, right? And of being grateful that you woke up today because not everybody woke up today, right? So just that, just being thankful that you woke up today, just pausing and noticing and recognizing and being thankful for that is a meditation. Well, and I, I always love where you take this because you're quick to point out that it, you know, it doesn't take 20 minutes. It doesn't take an hour. If you've got that time and you can dedicate it to a meditation, great. If not, you can accomplish much the same in one breath or in just one thought given with intention. And that, that gratitude can fill you for the rest of the day. All it takes is a breath. Yeah, just, just one breath, you know, that you notice, that you focus on. You know, I actually... My morning meditation is a 20-minute practice, you know, 20 minutes of stillness, of mantra meditation focused on my breath. It's uh, something I learned from Emily Fletcher from her book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, Ziva Meditation, she calls it. And, and, you know, that's every morning. So in the afternoons or in the evenings, I've been doing this other meditation that's guided. And so there's guided meditation, and then there's just sitting in stillness and quiet. And I've had some interesting experiences with guided meditation lately where I didn't used to really like them. And now I actually look forward to some of the the guided meditations that I get with Jay Shetty. I joined the Genius app or whatever it's called program. There is an app called Genius. And I get these guided meditations. And usually I go for 20 minutes. But I was pressed for time once and I grabbed the five-minute meditation. And I was amazed at how this five-minute meditation of this uh, Om uh, mantra just reinvigorated me and just made me feel so completely alive in five minutes. I was just blown away. Yeah. To to those who are intimidated by this for any reason, I, I would encourage you, just give five minutes to this. Give just a few minutes a day in in a place of peace and quiet and see the benefit for yourself. It, it's so interesting to me whenever I get away from doing this, and I rarely do. I mean, I, I'm pretty consistent with it, but if I ever do get away from it, I start to miss it now um, because I, I'm. it's very clear to me what the benefit is at this point. So moving from kind of that stillness of of body and kind of quieting all the, the processes and focusing in on, on the heart rate and, and on the breath, moving from that to sort of a stillness of mind, one of the topics you wanted to discuss today that was interesting, and I think there is some dovetail here and some crossover between that whole stillness uh, as an altar of the spirit and this stillness of the mind. So one of the things you wanted to discuss was the need to not always know, like uncertainty and living in a space where not everything is clear. Why yeah. did you want to discuss that today? You know, I'll tell you why, because in, in coming up with a, in trying to come up with a topic for today's discussion, I kept coming up blank. I just kept coming up blank. And I wrote this to you. I said, Riley, you know, I forgot to call you yesterday. 
And then I said, well, actually, I didn't forget to call you. I procrastinated because I didn't have any ideas. And maybe I should have called you or texted you to, to ask you if you had any ideas. And then I, even as I was writing this, I thought, let me write as I, as I thought out loud to myself or as, and as I typed, I wrote, what if we talk about, and then I thought something would come if I did that, right? Or maybe I thought I had the beginning of an idea and just nothing. I just kept coming up blank. And so then I said, well, why don't we talk about that? <laughs> why not talk about that? There are questions. I've sat with questions. There's a particular question that I sat with regarding the atonement for 10 years. You can ask Shiloh. I've been talking to him about it for 10 years. So maybe not sitting in silence and maybe not sitting still for 10 years, but really just being able to sit with a question, especially in, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we tend to be enamored with answers and we we feel like we have all the answers and we're told that we have all the answers. And yet, that's not really the case, right? It's not it's not really true that we're told that we have all the answers, and it's certainly not true that we do have all the answers. If we do have all the answers, then there's nothing left to learn, and that's not the plan, right? The plan is that we're learning uh, through our experience. And so I really sat with that question. I talked to Shiloh about it once in a while on the phone, and 10 years, no answer. And I just had to be okay with that. I just had to be okay with And here's the thing, Riley, if I had gone for, if I had been insistent on having an answer sooner, I could have just grabbed an easy answer. Now, part of this, who knows, maybe it's having to do with my training as a philosopher. You know, I just wasn't willing to go for an easy answer. I knew that wasn't the answer. And so I just, I wanted to answer the harder question. And so I just sat with it and I asked that question over and over and I thought about it and I, I pondered it and I just discussed it. And 10 years later, I got an answer. That's a long time not to have an answer, right? Sometimes we want answers and we want them now, don't we? Yeah, I think a lot of us see the point of life as being obtaining answers. Once we're done with all this, we've gained all this experience, well, then we'll have all the answers. And the the person who kind of lives a, a present-focused life, I think, knows to a fuller extent the purpose of life. And it's in the experience. It's in the living itself. Uh, we can struggle and strive to find answers because, you know, it causes us some sort of mental distress to live in uncertainty. That It is tough to not know. And I, I've never had to experience, for instance, what someone who has had a child that has been, you know, kidnapped and disappeared forever. Like what kind of uncertainty and distress would that cause in you just to not know? I can't, I can't understand that. And I wouldn't pretend to, uh, to say that it's okay just to have that uncertainty. It's, it's, it's not. But the reality is we don't have all the answers either, and we may never get them. And so learning how to deal with not having all the answers is every bit as much the point of life as getting the answers themselves, right? Yeah. You know, I have two favorite answers to the question, what is the, the meaning of life? And that one, they, they came to mind with what you just said. One of them is from Alan Watts. And Alan Watts says, the meaning of life is to live. It's to be alive. It was something like that, right? Just the meaning of life is to be alive. I was reading a, a memoir by an Iranian-American woman who, you know, she, she went through some, she, she had a, a psychotic break, you know, and she's bipolar. Her name is Melody I don't even know how to, how to say her last name, M-O-E-Z-Z-I. I, I don't speak Persian. 
But, you know, she, her dad told her when she was depressed to just, to just welcome all visitors is, is a line he quoted from Rumi, you know? And she says, wait, I'm supposed to welcome depression? I don't want depression. I, I mean, I just want to get to the end of it. And he was telling her it's the same subject that we're dealing with here is just to sit with it and to learn from it. I don't want to learn from depression, she says. Well, you just sit with it and you learn from it. And one thing I thought of the other day as I as I sat with some discomfort, I don't remember whether it was physical or psychological. I remember having this experience the other day and, and writing it down in, in my journal, you know, in terms of what did I learn yesterday as I was filling out my daily template journal. And that is that whatever it is that makes you uncomfortable, if you sit with it long enough, you'll either get used to it or it will go away. And notice it doesn't have to go away, right? Uh, you, you can get used to it. And notice if you if you don't get used to it, well, it's still going to be there until it goes away. It reminds me of what the Book of Mormon says about temptation, because Oscar Wilde said the only way to get rid of a temptation is by yielding to it. And he's Oscar Wilde was quite the rascal. And so the prima facie meaning of that, if you if you think I know Oscar Wilde, he's a rascal, is he's just making excuses to give into temptation. But there's another way to read that, and it turns out it's the same thing the Book of Mormon teaches, which is temptation will be there 24-7, 365. It doesn't go away. So if you're not giving into it, it's still there. So get used to it. So I picked out a couple quotes that I thought were interesting on this idea of stillness of mind. One of them is from Lao Tzu, and it says, The mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. So this sort of stillness of mind is where we kind of try to allow the thoughts to come, pass through, and then pass on and move move through us, but don't control us. And I love the, the conditional statement here. It says, To the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. So what do you make of that kind of a statement, Chris? The whole universe surrenders. It's so hard for me to respond to this quote, meaning my response, how I felt when you read it, not just you asking me to respond to it out loud without thinking of the whole of the work. I just recently reread it. The This is from the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and it's just incredible. It's just an incredible book, uh, a sacred text, you know, an inspired text, no doubt. And so I think the main teaching of, of the Tao Te Ching, as is illustrated by the quote you gave, is this idea of, it seems paradoxical, right? And that's, that's how this is. It's this doing without doing, that if you just surrender rather than resist, that then actually, you know, let's put it in terms of a, a Jesus quote, right? Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake finds it. This is paradoxical, right? The idea that you would lose your life to find it. And I think that's the kind of teaching that the that the quote you shared is communicating. And, and of course, the whole book, again, it's a great, it's an incredible book. And how that relates back to kind of your idea of uncertainty and, and being comfortable with not knowing, or at least just reconciling to the idea that you're not going to have all the answers is, you know, a lot of times we hyper-obsess about this idea that we we have to have an answer. There has to be an answer out there somewhere. And it, it's just a matter of me expending more effort until I get it. And what Lao Tzu is trying to say here, I think, is that, you know, if you are actually able to calm the mind and still the mind and not be obsessed or compulsive about that, 
that the universe, the whole universe can surrender that to you. Maybe not even the answer, but just the feeling of not being anxious anymore. That's the point of, of the, of the Tao Te Ching, of this idea of doing without doing, because if you're actually chasing the answer, you'll never find it, right? That's the thing. You have to be comfortable with, with maybe you don't get an answer for the answer. You have to let it come to you, right? The idea is not to chase it, but to let it come to you. I've had some experiences in meditation that are pretty transcendental, you know, and I've made the mistake, not frequently, but sometimes you catch yourself chasing those experiences and then you just, you have to know that that never works, right? You have to let that go. And it's only through letting go that those experiences come to you. So I think there's a sense of even the divine masculine, divine feminine yin-yang thing here going on too, where so often we're of, and maybe this is even a cultural thing, we're of the mindset that if you do more and try harder, that the answers come and salvation comes, exaltation comes, like all those things come from the expansion of, of more effort. Have more faith, pray more, serve pray more, more, do more, do, serve do, more. do. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the Latter-day Saint, you know, doing, right? There's this Latter-day doing, I'll call it. Yeah. And, and so the opposite side of that, the, what you might call the yin of that yang would be learning how to quiet the mind and leave it open to the experience of, of letting things happen to you. So the experience itself will be revelatory. Call that Latter-day being. Um, yeah. So you could, you could frame it as being versus becoming too, right? And that's what this podcast is about. Yeah. And so Soren Kierkegaard did that as well. Um, and, and Mircea Eliade as well. He, he, they contrasted the being versus becoming. And, you know, they both have value in balance, right? Like we should do things. We should have action in our life. Of course. We're back to the esoteric and the exoteric, right? Yes. Yeah. But there's also that sense when you take one to an extreme, like you start chasing the answer, that it's going to start running away from you. It's like uh, the horse whisperer type deal, right? I mean, someone who's trying to train a new horse using the techniques of the horse whisperer actually turns away from the horse and the horse starts walking towards him. Now, he might walk backwards slowly towards the horse, but by not facing him and not constantly imposing himself on on the horse, the horse is actually attracted to that energy. And so they come together gradually by that kind of like a mutual ascent versus just one imposing upon the other. I think there's really something to the way you interpreted that, right? He's attracted to that energy. That's Isn't this the idea of the secret? For, for however, um, I, I don't want to put too much into the secret. I, I'll, I'll tell my own experience. I mean, I've seen some crazy things come out of this idea of the secret. You know, living in Utah, I didn't see them, but I heard about them. These are things that are happening in Utah where people moved into houses that did not belong to them, that they could not afford, and thought that if they just did that, that the house would become theirs, right? This is not, I don't think this is what it's meant. But on the other hand, I had the experience of just focusing my energy and my intention on something that I wanted which, by the way, may not be what I needed. It may not have been what was best for me. In this case, uh, the case that I have in my mind, it was kind of value neutral. It wasn't good or evil. Um, it just was what it was. And I just got what I wanted, something that I, I can't say I didn't think was possible because the point is that I did think it was possible and it became possible by thinking it was possible. 
but I did have to wait for it to come to me. I couldn't just chase after it. I couldn't move in. I couldn't steal it. You know, I couldn't take it. I couldn't seize it, grab it. I had to let it come to me, and it did. Well, and I think this works in in prayer and meditation as well. You know, there's a space for asking, requesting, um, kind of petitionary prayer, you might call it. I'm petitioning for this outcome, whatever that is, whether it's for me or for someone else or whatever. It's a petition. It's a request. But then there's also the kind of prayer that is one of let it be, sort of like the, the amen, just just let it be. Uh, according to thy will. Okay, this was a prayer that was offered by Jesus on more than one occasion, be it according to thy will. Mary offered that same prayer when she when she had the Magnificat, you know, and the, the angel said, you know, you're going to bear the uh, bear a son. And she said, you know, according to thy will, be it, be it according to thy will. Uh, behold the handmaid of the Lord, you know. I, I love that kind of language that just says, I'm receptive, I'm open to allowing you to change me or reveal to me. And I think sometimes revelation is is kind of crowded out by our petitions, by our requests, by our chasing. And so if we'll put those things back in balance and allow space for revelation to happen to us by being receptive, um, I think that can only come through the stilling of our of our mind's motives or objectives and just allowing things to happen. You know, I couldn't help but think of the song Let It Be by the Beatles. I love and, that and you said you mentioned Mary and I didn't realize I'm looking at the lyrics now and it looks like Mary makes an appearance in the song. But it's not Perhaps. the same Mary you think it is. <laughs> it's not the same Mary. Oh, OK, because no. I'm thinking, you know, she does say, uh, let it be unto me right? according to thy Right. Yeah. She's the handmaiden of the Lord. Right. There you go. So that's not what I see here in the lyrics. But it could be they wrote that into the song as a parallel kind of uh, symbolic thing because they're actually referring to their mothers. Uh, I think John and um, Paul both had mothers named Mary who passed away. And so they were referring to their own mothers. But um, then it's archetypal. There's no reason why they couldn't. That's why that's what I'm saying. There could have been a parallel um, there. Anyway, I do love that song. And I've always loved the word amen because it 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 harkens back to this idea of let it be, yes. which is a principle you'll find in many faith traditions, this idea of letting things be and being okay with them, like living with the reality. Right. So as we as we're talking about this, you know, several things kind of come to mind as how can we actually do this? What what are some of the actions we might take to instill a sense of stillness of mind? So continuing on with this theme of stillness of mind, there's a couple other quotes that I think address what we're talking about here. One of them is in the Yoga Sutras by uh, Patanjali, and it says, Yoga means stillness of mind and freedom from oscillations and various mental processes. That one's a little more, it almost seems technical. But I like it because, it, again, it, it harkens back to this idea of oscillations, like constant movement, friction, and then various mental processes. And being able to still the mind, it offers it offers you a sense of freedom and puts you in a space of revelation. Anything to say on that one, Chris? Yeah, you know, so for it occurs to me to say that for those who don't know how this works, you know, if you're if you're trying meditation, if you're trying to be still and to not be not just still in your body, but still in your mind and, and you find that the thoughts just keep coming to you. Sometimes I go through a I was about to say an unproductive meditation session. I'm not sure it's unproductive. It's just productive in a different way. There are meditation sessions where I find out what's on my mind. And that's not the intention of my meditation. But I just take those, you know, nothing's wrong. Just take them and 
make some notes and figure out what I need to do with whatever was on my mind and try meditating again some other time where I want to actually be still in my thoughts, right? And so being still in your thoughts, again, there are, there are some of these battles that I lose, but then again, I win because I do find out what's on my mind. But when this, when thoughts come, just focus on your breath, right? Just return your thoughts to your breath. The, the one thing you don't want to do is to castigate yourself, right? Oh, darn it. There I go thinking again. Oh, I can't stop thinking. Oh, it's so frustrating. You know, just don't do that. Just, just be like, oh, okay. I, I notice I'm thinking. Okay. I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. So now I return to my breath and just give yourself a break. It's okay. Just give yourself a break. Return to your breath. Go back to focusing on your breath. And then this last quote says, the soul has been given its own ears to hear things the mind does not understand. That one's by Rumi. Um, I love that you know, quote. Islamic Sufi mystic there. That's a great one. Yeah. What do you get out of that? You know, it reminds me actually of another quote that as soon as I heard that, I thought of this other quote. This is from Rilke, whom you and I both love. Rilke says, most experiences are unsayable. They become real to us in a space no word has entered. That's from his uh, letters to a young poet. Yeah, not only is experience unsayable, it's sort of indescribable. We attempt to describe experiences all the time, but there's no substitute for the experience itself. No. We do our best, right? And so do the prophets. We have to r- realize that that the scriptures that we read are not the experience that the prophets had. Imagine only having your journal descriptions of the things you went through in your whole life and not ever being able to tap into the the experience of having done that. Like all you had was just the description of it. No, I get that. And and look at the flip side too. Having that journal can help to, just like the scriptures, can help to bring us into an experience or back into an experience of God if we've had and we've all had experiences of God. By the way, we may not, may not may not realize it, right? If you haven't, if you if you don't realize you've had an experience of God, that doesn't mean you haven't had an experience of God, because the reality is that you are connected with God and inseparable from God. There's just no way that you're not having an experience of God. So it's a question of awareness. My father doesn't remember his dreams, and so he says he doesn't dream. I'm no expert, but the experts do say he dreams. Right? He just doesn't remember his dreams, so he's not aware of them. But the fact that we're not aware of God does not mean that God is not aware of us. And, it, and, it, and there's really no way that we can be other than connected with God, even when we feel disconnected. See, I say feel because this is an experience, and it's, it's epistemological. The metaphysical reality is our own unity with God. We come from God. We are in God. We return to God. It's all God in a sense. We, we talk about in our tradition that we're not human beings having spiritual experiences. We're rather spiritual beings having, having human experiences. That implies that the bulk of our experience is divine and that the, the human experience is the one that is not just, it's not only illusory in the sense that it doesn't last as long as, as our existence overall, but even in it, even when we're in it, we're, we're just not disconnected from God as much as we may think we are. I just don't think we are. Even, you know, I can think I am, and I've thought that I was, but in, in moments of lucidity and in moments of inspiration, you realize it's just it's not the way it is. You know, when I think about the stillness that I experience in meditation and the oneness that I experience with all of existence, 
or in or another uh, way of doing it is through my experiences in nature right the experiences that i've had in nature they really teach me in an experiential way not by argument and i here i am trying to make some kind of argument right but i'm just trying to share my experience right of what i've what i've felt that is the presence of god the reality of god in my life yeah and i think that's what we're getting at here is that the more often you take just a few minutes to do this and and reconnect you start to realize that that connection with god is always there we might forget it uh for extended periods of time especially when we don't remind ourselves that we are spiritual beings having a human experience and not vice versa. And so the the point of these practices is really the reconnection of divine beings with divinity. Um, so, you know, just some thoughts on, again, some action items on how we might get ourselves into this space. You know, you talked about uncertainty and and not knowing and, and learning to live with that not knowing. We can combine that with our everyday actions, you know, practicing the the ideal of letting go of being right is something that uh, can actually, you know, help you alleviate a lot of anxiety and stress in your life. If you get in one of those subjective arguments, for instance, where you know there's really no right answer, there's only opinions. You know, so often we fight arguments like that as if there is one right and one wrong. I think the the opportunity of of letting go there is a good way to practice letting go of other things that cause us anxiety. So an answer that says, oh, I guess we'll just never know, or I may not know enough to be able to answer that, or you know what, you're probably right. It, it puts you on that. Or you could be right. Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, you don't even have to completely cede the point, but you can cede the, the argumentative part of the point. Uh, the argument itself, you know, might remain unknowable, but at least being argumentative, you can see that and, and learn to give that up. And that simple practice will help to reconnect you with the feeling that it's okay to have uncertainty in your life. As you enter into your uh, prayers or meditations, you know, consider adopting a mantra that says something along the lines of, I embrace mystery or I, I don't know and that's okay. You know, this podcast is about contemplation. And if uh, if there's anything that's kind of synonymous with contemplation, it, it's the fact that there is mystery in the universe and we just don't know. And so tapping into the mystery of God is actually a way to let go of certainty. Or you might pray if you, if you aren't in that place to be in that place, right? I'm reminded of the prayer, you know, I, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right? So I, I think I know. Help me, help me realize I don't know or help me admit that I don't know. Right? I know that in my, in my prayer experience, uh, when there are times that I have wanted to, when I've struggled with myself, you know, with my lower self, I've been able to, to tap into the power of Christ and my higher self and to say, you know, I don't have the strength. I don't have the strength of character to, to do this on my own and to ask to borrow strength in my weakness, to borrow strength in my weakness while I build my own strength. And I've received that strength in the asking. That brings to mind the, the admonition from Christ when he says, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It's kind of the same idea is that, you know, we can tap into the strength of others who are possibly, you know, that, that possibly better understand this principle or any others. Well, all of this is to say, kind of to bring this full circle and and help us to understand the point of the ideas we've been discussing here in stillness, 
is that our awareness is multiplied and magnified as we tap tap into these moments of of stillness, of not knowing, of receptivity versus imposition. And you know, we we spend a lot of time talking and dictating and and trying to set the terms between our interactions with God. And I think in stillness we're we're essentially seeding that. We're we're allowing God to set the terms pardon me, and to, you know, be able to contribute to the dialogue that you're supposed to be having in prayer or meditation or communion. I love that. Well, Chris, is there anything else you wanted to uh, offer to, before we close this episode? Only this, be still and know that I am God. You know, that's such a great uh, scripture quote. It's one that can turn into a meditation, and we've done this on prior episodes, Something Richard Rohr has done on occasion whenever he opens one of his speeches is to take that scripture and do a prayer of subtraction and uh, take a word or two off the back end until you end up with the simple word be as the first word of that phrase. And, you know, if if you're looking for ideas or uh, prompts to help you get into a meditative state and to help you start a practice, that's a great way to do it. So I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Riley. It's been a great conversation, Riley. Well, we'll just let this conversation be. We'll leave it in stillness, and we'll talk again next week. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Ristol.